forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And so we can say, I've been redeemed if we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee for that salvation, and we pray that we would exalt the Savior even as we look into thy word afresh. Give us help by thy spirit, we pray in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. And for the third chapter in a row, you read, hear this word. So again, that Hebrew verb shema, which would get their attention. This is the God who called them to be his people, made them a nation, gave them his law. And he's reiterating that and calling them back to what that law said in the first place. But here we get this added note. Amos chapter 5, verse 1, Hear this word, which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. And apparently in Hebrew, the meter even conforms to what we might call a dirge. So for those who like the blues, you know, this is sort of like Amos singing the blues. I knew I would have at least one aficionado there. But uh, be careful what you tell me over pancakes. It may work its way into the sermon. But... This shows us the heart of God a bit. It gives us a little peek behind the curtain that God isn't glibly pronouncing judgment on Israel. He's not saying, you know, oh, I'm glad you messed up so I can come in and discipline you. I'm glad I can bring this judgment on you. In fact, the New Testament, as well as many prophecies in the Old, assure us that God still has an inviolable purpose for Israel. He hasn't forgotten his promises. He hasn't broken his covenant toward them. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance, Romans 10 says. And he is going to restore Israel to himself. Out of Zion shall come forth the deliverer, and so all Israel shall be saved, Romans 11 says. Now that's going to come about the same way salvation comes in every dispensation, through faith in the provision God has made. That provision we know to be in the Lamb of God, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And they as a nation are going to look on him whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, Zechariah 12 tells us. So God isn't taking this lightly and he's not really enjoying, you know, kind of raking them over the coals or rubbing salt in the wounds. Again, this is tough love. This is sitting down with your child who's dabbling in drugs and saying, Do you know what this is doing to you? Do you know what this can do to you? Do you know how this can kill you? And you're going to be using any means at your disposal to show them. Show them pictures of junkies. Show them statistics of the number of people that OD. Show them what life like that looks. This is what God's doing with Israel. And so he says, O house of Israel, verse 2, the virgin of Israel has fallen. Notice that language. In God's mind, he's still looking at her as she was at the beginning, that pristine virgin, unsullied, not defiled and made dirty by the world and its sin. It reminds me of Jeremiah 2, where the Lord talks about when they were engaged. You remember, I remember, says the Lord, the day of thine espousals, when I led you forth in the wilderness. Now, when we think of the wilderness, the book of Numbers, we can think about Israel testing the Lord 10 times. We can think about the Lord, Israel messing up and murmuring and complaining and turning to sin and saying, make us a captain and let us go back to Egypt. God looks back and in gracious editorial majesty, he says, no, what really stands out to me is how beautiful you were, how much I loved you, 
how much I wanted you to be mine in purity. Of course, in Jeremiah 2, he goes on to talk about how they had turned from him and they had gone into defilement. So similar here, similarly here in verse 2, the virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There's no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left and that which goes out by a hundred shall have 10 left to the house of Israel. Now we really ought to know our book of Deuteronomy really well. Because again, this is exactly what Deuteronomy said. That I'm going to reduce you. That there's going to be an inverse decrease in the nation in proportion to your disobedience and your infidelity. This is why in Ezekiel, we see that when God restores Israel to himself, it's going to be like a resurrection on a national level. It's going to be dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones, you know, as the old song has it. God uh, has Ezekiel see that vision of all these bones, a dead army lying out in the desert, dry and desiccated. And God's going to bring that army back to life. That's what he does to the nation. It's life from the dead. It awaits the future. But for them, the near future was going to be judgment and destruction unless they repented and we know historically they didn't as a nation for thus says the lord verse 4 to the house of israel seek me and live but do not seek bethel nor enter gilgal nor pass over to beersheba for gilgal shall surely go into captivity and bethel shall come to nothing seek the lord and live lest he break out like fire in the house of joseph and devour it with no one mentioned in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. Now there's a lot of irony right there in those verses. First of all, there's the wonderful invitation to salvation. Seek me and live. The Lord doesn't just say, well, here you are. You're oppressing people. You're stealing from people. You're hurting people. You're going into immorality. You're going into all kinds of perversion. You're going into idolatry. I'm going to just destroy you, full stop. No, the Lord says, I'm telling you all this so that you turn around and seek me. Repentance and faith towards God, which has been what God's been on about all through the Bible, Old and New Testament. This is what Paul preached. But he says, do not seek Bethel. Now here comes the irony. Bethel is the house of God, as we mentioned in the previous message. This is where Jacob went up. And you remember, he had, uh, as Michael Card says in one of his songs, a stone for a pillow as hard as his head. He slept on holy ground. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. We remember as Jacob is fleeing, the trickster who wants the right thing, but he's going about it in all the wrong way. And he's going out, he's having to, suffer a sort of exile, his own personal chastening in Mesopotamia. And on the way, God stops him there in Bethel. As he's sleeping, he dreams of what we commonly call Jacob's ladder, right? That there's a gate of heaven there with angels coming up and down. And he says here, don't seek Bethel, because now Bethel isn't the gate between heaven and earth. Bethel now in Assyria, rather in these days when the Assyrian threat is looming, Bethel is a shrine to idolatry. It's one of the places where Jeroboam put up the golden calf. So it's not the house of God anymore. It's been uh, defiled, shall we say. It's been perverted to something else. 
Now the Lord Jesus in John 1, you remember, told Nathanael when he said, Behold an Israelite in whom there's no guile. He said, Rabbi, whence knowest thou me? And then when he said, Before you came to me, I saw you under the fig tree, I believe it was. And Nathanael says uh, something like, My Lord and my God, or something like that. I forget the exact wording, I'm sorry. But um, in any case, the Lord makes the comment to him that you believe because I've told you this, you're going to see greater things than these. Hereafter, you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So the real place where the house of God is established is through knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that still lies in the future of the nation at this point. Right now, God says to them in verse 5, don't seek Bethel. Those sacrifices to your false gods at the false altar, that's not going to reach God, nor enter Gilgal. That's interesting because Gilgal is the place where Israel prepares to enter the land in Joshua and to conquer the land. You remember the salvation that God promised to the Exodus generation was twofold. Part of it was he's going to bring them out of Egypt, bring them out of bondage. But that wasn't it. He was also going to bring them into the promised land and make them his own special people there. And so on the verge of going into that land, they stop at Gilgal and they do various things. One thing, they build a monument to the Lord there. And they write on that monument the commandments of the Lord. So they reaffirm, as it were, the promises God has made to them in his word. And they say, basically, we're going on in the basis of this. We're standing on the salvation and the work of the Lord promised in his word. And they also circumcise the people that hadn't been circumcised in the wilderness. So circumcision in the Old Testament, a picture of putting off the flesh, where you're saying it's not by human effort, we're relying on God. And yet here's the irony. In this day that Amos is talking about, Gilgal isn't any more a place where people say we're going back to God and his word. We're relying on the Lord. Now it's a place where they're doing their own kind of worship, where they've brought their own innovation. They've added their own things to the worship of God. And he says, don't go to Gilgal, uh, nor pass over to Beersheba. Now Beersheba, a third place, very important in their history. Genesis 21, Abraham makes that covenant with Abimelech there, and he calls the well there, the well of the oath, Beersheba. And it is a place associated with the faithfulness of God because God has maintained Abraham. And now even in Genesis 21, the nations around are seeing, yes, God is with you. God's your people. Don't destroy us. And Abraham is there at Beersheba. And later it's the place where Isaac is going to come, Abraham's son in Genesis 26. And God is going to reiterate the promises of the covenant to him, saying, I'm going to multiply you and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you great. And later, uh, it's a place, again, where Jacob is going to also uh, be involved. And yet now, it's not any of those things. Now, it's an idolatrous shrine. For he says, Gilgal shall surely go into captivity. Now, remember I said Gilgal was when they were coming out of captivity, going into the conquest of the land. And it's like God saying, we're going to roll back the tape. You know, we're going to rewind history here. Instead of you coming out of bondage, 
if you're following false doctrine and false religion, that's not a step forward. That's taking you backward. Now, can that kind of thing happen today? Most assuredly it can. I was reading a major evangelical Christian magazine some years back uh, that specializes in news pertaining to the evangelical world. And they had an article about something called the ancient future movement. And these people were saying, you know, when we look at the church today, especially in the West, uh, it's about a mile wide and an inch deep. I mean, there's a lot of performance. There's a lot of entertainment. There's a lot of doing things according to business thinking and trying to attract people in. And there's very little about substance and getting back to worshiping God and getting to know who God is. So we thought we'd go back to the history of the early church. Now, so far, so good. (laughs) We can look around and say, no, it's not according to man's thinking. No, it's not according to marketing techniques. No, it's not according to what's pleasing to man. Let's go back to church history. Let's go back to the beginning, in fact. The only problem is they only went back to the second century. And they started saying, you know, we've found out that if we bring in candles and we bring in burning of incense and we bring in the teachings of various saints, you know, that this deepens people's understanding of God. And one young lady was quoted this way. She said, well, I grew up in what she identified as a Plymouth Brethren Assembly in Massachusetts. And she, I wouldn't use that term myself. I don't like any term that demarcates the body of Christ, that differentiates true believers from one another. But she was identifying where she came from. And she said, the problem with where I grew up was, you'd go to the Lord's Supper, and as the Lord moved different brothers, we would sing certain songs, or a brother would have a thought about the Lord, or he would get up and pray, or someone would read from the Scripture. But I found out that sometimes when I went to the Lord's Supper, I just wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready to worship the Lord in my heart. And now I find out this new church I'm going to, it doesn't matter because it's all right there in the liturgy. So even if my heart's not right, I can still follow along and worship. And I was like, come again? (laughs) And this is being quoted favorably? And this magazine is touting this as the way forward? If I'm not right in my heart, if I'm not prepared before the Lord, then surely the problem isn't with the Lord's Supper. The problem is with me. I need to repent. I need to look back to the Lord afresh and remember what the Lord did for me. And yet today we have people saying we need to go back to the creeds and the confessions and the liturgy and the things of the past because this is the way to really get in touch with spirituality. No, it isn't. We need to go back to the Bible. We need to go back to the principles the Bible sets forth. We need to maintain that. Seek the Lord, he says in verse 6, and live. Now, the irony was Gilgal was leading them into captivity, and he says, Bethel shall come to nothing. It wouldn't be a place of meeting with God. It wouldn't be a place that was the gate of heaven. It would come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. Joseph being tribes, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim in their day that were in the northern part of the country and going to feel the brunt of that invasion. With no one to quench it in Bethel, you who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. So bad doctrine leads to bad practice. If you're not worshiping the true and living God, in the way he's ordained, 
Guess what? You're not going to have power in your life to live differently. You're not going to live a holy life. You're not going to practice righteousness toward others. People say, well, we need to be more concerned about our fellow man, more interested in social justice. Good. Get more interested in God. Get to know the Lord better and you'll love people more because the Lord will put that in your heart. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given unto us, Romans 5 says. And you'll begin to care for other people and reach out the way the Lord Jesus did. And yet they weren't doing that because they were worshiping the wrong thing. Now, think of God's greatness. Verse 8, he made the Pleiades, the seven sisters as we call them, and Orion, the hunter, these constellations. He turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin on the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. Think of this mighty creator God. One who once upon a time destroyed the world with a flood. And he still has that same kind of power. That's why you've got to take this seriously. Verse 10. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate. And they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. The gate is the place of government in the ancient world. It's where Boaz goes to clear up the business matters regarding Naomi and Ruth and their late husbands, Malon, Kilion, and Elimelech. And uh, we have many things done in the gate in the Bible that refer to government. And they hate someone who's going to rebuke sin and abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Now, we live in a country where this is very clear, right? Where let a, let a political figure get up and talk about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care of what party or what other platform, they will be laughed at and lampooned and they'll be on Saturday Night Live and every other show, people making fun of them, right? Same thing in ancient Israel. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you'll not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, you'll not drink wine from them. And that again is an echo of Deuteronomy 28. And so, you know, God really wants us to enjoy life. In Deuteronomy 21, if they were going to go out to battle, God would say, now you go through the ranks and you ask, who's married, uh, been betrothed to a wife and not gotten married yet? You're engaged, you haven't gotten to enjoy married life yet, go home. Enjoy married life, you'll be around for the next war, you know? Who's built a house? You've not gotten to live in it yet. Who's planted a vineyard? You've not gotten to drink of the fruit of the vine yet. And here, uh, later in, in chapter 28, he says, if you turn from the Lord, the curses are going to come upon you. You're going to build a house and somebody else is going to live there. And you're going to plant the vineyard and somebody else is going to eat of it. Not because God wants to take good things away from us, but because if we won't have God, we can't have the good things either. Because good things in and of themselves can become idols if we divorce them from God, can't they? For I know your manifold transgressions, verse 12 says, and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keeps silent at that time, for it is an evil time. You know, people that have understanding, that were smarter, that were wiser to know this was the wrong way, they were cowed into silence. Because they knew if they spoke up, they'd get shouted down. They'd be oppressed. They'd be hurt. Now God calls on them again in verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you. 
as you've spoken, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, listen to that language because it's a bona fide offer. If you turn around and seek the Lord, the Lord will receive you. The Lord will save. The Lord will restore you. The Lord will work in your midst. But you're getting to the point by your sin where it's reaching terminal velocity. It's like the snowball going down the hill. You know that it gets bigger and bigger the closer to the bottom of the hill. Same thing with their iniquity. He's now speaking about just the remnant of Joseph, just a little bit left over. But they can still be saved. There's still a remnant he's holding out for. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, says this, there shall be wailing in all streets, and they'll say in the highways, alas, alas. They'll, show, they'll call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards, they'll be wailing for I'll pass through you, says the Lord. He's not coming to save here. He's coming to judge. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a very common term in biblical prophecy in the Old and New Testaments. And it basically has two sides to it. On the one hand, it is when the Lord is exalted in glory and correspondingly evil is put down in judgment. So the two sides are the Lord is glorified and sin is judged. Now, here are people that were saying, we want the day of the Lord. Now, what kind of people are these? They're the kind of people that say, oh, you know, someday we're going to be in heaven and everything's going to be all right. No more taxes, no more COVID. No more whatever the negative thing du jour is, you know. Whatever the bad thing is, we're not going to have that anymore. Isn't it going to be a great thing? And yet he says, what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. If you don't know the Lord and you're living in sin, the day of the Lord isn't something to look forward to. The coming of the Lord is going to be something where Revelation 6 says to the unbelievers that they will call on the mountains and the hills to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb and from the face of Him who sits on the throne. We, we sing that sometimes in that great hymn, The Love of God. When men who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call. It's a solemn thing, isn't it? If you don't have the Lamb of God as your Savior... You will have the Lamb of God as your judge. And the Lord Jesus tells us that it's the same thing in our day, that when he comes to judge, as he says in Matthew 7, that there's going to be people saying, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and heal the sick and preach and so forth? And the Lord's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Religious verbiage, religious vocabulary, religious activity is nothing if it's not united to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what the day of the Lord's going to be like to them, and I find this a little humorous. You talk about a bad day. Have you had a bad day? Look at verse 19. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. <laughs> it's almost like a cartoon, right? Whew, I got rid of the bear. but I mean, rid of the lion, but there's a bear. Then he went into the house. Oh, I'm away from the bear. And he leaned his hand on the wall. And the snake came out and bit him. <laughs> A serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. Now Leviticus 23, God had given them a whole calendar full of harvest festivals, feasts of the Lord. And these were meant to be 
festivities. They were meant to be good times where they could come and fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with one another. But by the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know how the Gospel of John records to them? It says, for instance, in John 5, there was a feast of the Jews. It's not the Lord's feast anymore. It's just man doing what man does. And this can happen to anything, even God-given things. The Lord's Supper can become something that we approach without faith. We just do it habitually. We don't come with hearts exercised for the Lord. It can just be about us or how I feel or what I want to say about myself or my experience or what I want to sing or do. It's not about remembering the Lord and what he's done and worshiping and praising him. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs." Now that's pretty rough. (laughs) You think it's great praise music? This is noise, the Lord says. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I'll not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? Basically saying, go back to your history. You've been this way from the beginning. You also carried Sikut, your king, And Cain, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I'll send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, well, here you talk a lot about worshiping the Lord and you bring the sacrifices and you celebrate the holidays, but you don't care about me because right from the beginning, you've also had idols right alongside of me. And as I said, Amos, I said this last night, Amos is quoted at least twice in the book of Acts. This verse, these verses are quoted in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is giving his message before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And you remember the issue there was that they thought that Stephen was speaking against the law of Moses and against the temple. In actual fact, Stephen was pointing out that in all their history, when God raised up messengers and raised up deliverers, They rejected them and persecuted them right down to the Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus. And here they were so scrupulous about the temple and so scrupulous about the sacrifices and the feasts. What do I mean? I remember when they're bringing the Lord Jesus to Pilate and they're saying, now we'd like you to put this man to death. He's a really bad person, a malefactor, you know, an evildoer. Why won't they enter into Pilate's judgment hall? Oh, we don't want to defile ourselves because we've got to eat the Passover. You know, we've got the Seder coming up, the Passover feast. We can't be hobnobbing with Gentiles. Oh, I see. So you can arrange judicial murder. You can kill a man who's not only innocent, but perfectly righteous, who in fact happens to be the incarnate son of God, but you don't want to be defiled. So you can't eat this symbolic feast that speaks of who he is anyway, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or when the betrayer comes and he throws down the blood money, the 30 pieces of silver that they had paid him which for betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. They say, well, we can't put the money into the treasury. It's blood money. So they use it to buy a field, you know, a field of blood. Potter's Field, I think they still have one by that name in New York City, where you bury the poor, where you bury somebody who nobody cares about. And they can feel charitable about that. And they've maintained the purity of the treasury of the temple by 
taking money for betraying the life of the Son of God. I mean, it's horrible, isn't it? It's hypocrisy. Man's religion, powerless to restrain the most evil activities of the heart. Because all the way along, though they say they worship God, and though they're so addicted to the temple, they're really idolaters too. They've put themselves in the place of God. They're living for themselves. And they're not heeding the word of God. So Stephen quotes this of them and says, now don't get all uppity and think that you're better than most. You're idolaters just like your ancestors are. And you've been guilty of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, chapter six departs from that pattern of calling them to hear. Now he just says, woe, which is like an onomatopoeic word, you know, a word that makes sort of a sound that expresses angst. It expresses deep emotion. It expresses the ruination of being. And this is a chapter really about false security and spiritual apathy. And he says, woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamat the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than your territory? Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed." Now, again, that's pretty scathing. He's telling them to go down to these places, Kalna, Gath, and and so forth, and, and say, look at those places. These are places that fell to the Assyrians. And he's going to say, now, look at them. You know, I brought judgment on them. Do you think you're better? Do you think that it's not going to happen to you? And, of course, they don't think it's going to happen to them. They, they put far off the day of doom, as he says in verse 3. They don't think it's going to happen to them. Oh, it's never going to come. You know, these are like the people who in 2 Peter 3 say, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they have since the fathers fell asleep. I mean, they're uniformitarians in their understanding of history. God never intervenes. There's no judgment from God. You Christians have been talking for centuries, if not millennia, about the Lord Jesus coming back. And he's not here yet, is he? But listen, he's coming. (laughs) and it's going to overtake man, and they shouldn't think they're going to get away with it. But look at the apathy. Look at how indolent they are. They're lying on these beds of ivory, which we saw before that that was just what was left to them, part of their couch and part of their bed and part of their ear. And they're eating lambs and they're eating calves. They're just feasting and they're singing away, you know, and having a six string guitar wasn't enough. They invented a 12 string one, you know, and a flying V and and Fender Strat and Gibsons and who knows what else. And, And of course, Pennsylvania's own Martin. It's a great tour if you ever get to Nazareth, Pennsylvania to see the Martin Guitar Factory. And no, I don't get any remuneration for plugging that. It's just my state pride. Uh, But anyway, here they are singing away like the sweet psalmist of Israel, like David. 
just enjoying the arts and enjoying the good life. They are real aesthetes, what we'd call bon vivants. You know, the people that are living the good life, good food, good times. They've even got good cologne and good perfume. Chanel number five, you know, or maybe it's Stetson, the brand that fits. I don't know. But uh, you can tell I don't know much about this stuff. In any case, they're going to be taken away in judgment. Verse 8 says, the Lord God has sworn by himself. Now, this is something God says in Hebrews 6. I've sworn by myself. And Hebrews says, when God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. In other words, to speak in a way that humans can understand, to put it in terms that we relate to, God actually swears an oath to promise that the Lord Jesus is the great high priest we need who's going to save us and bring us to God perpetually. And and God uses that kind of verbiage. But here it's somewhat different. The Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Now, both James and Peter talk about this. The Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us. Pride is something the Lord hates. Something that was characteristic of an unbelieving, idolatrous nation like Moab. We have heard of the pride of Moab, Isaiah says. And I think Zephaniah also uses that phrase. But here it's the pride of Jacob. Little, weak Jacob who God in his grace has saved and blessed and given his word. But now the descendants of him, this nation, care nothing for the Lord. They're just proud. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when a relative of the dead, with one who will burn the bodies, picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to one inside the house, are there any more with you? Then someone will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. Now, the Israelites were not commonly into cremation or into burning bones. There's usually something associated with defilement when that happens. And the picture here is that the slaughter that was coming in war from the invasion of the Assyrians was going to be so bad that the bodies were going to be piled up faster than they could be buried. So somebody's got to come along later and deal with what's left, and and burn them. But here's the sad thing. He says, we dare not mention the name of the Lord. In other words, we're not going to have a nice funeral and say things about this person and talk about the hope of heaven and how they're with the Lord. We can't pronounce the Lord. We've turned away from the Lord, in other words. And this isn't the blessing of the Lord coming upon us. This is the cursing of those who depart from the Lord, who don't seek the Lord while he may be found and who are accordingly lost. He says, for behold, in verse 11, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. Do horses run on rocks? The answer, of course, is no. Does one plow there with oxen? Well, you don't want to plow in a stony field for sure. Yet you've turned justice into gall. You took when people were looking for the right thing to be done and for their rights to be maintained and to be protected from the oppressor, you turned it into something that was bitter. And the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. That's, of course, a parallel thought. You who rejoice over Lodibar. Now, this was a place that when you read in Second Kings, 
that Israel had regained. Before Assyria invaded, I said last night, they were having some political things going on during the reign of Jeroboam too, so they were leaving Israel alone. So Israel got to take back a few of the little places around them. Lodabar was one, but here's the irony. Lodabar means nothing. So you think this is great? You took this town back? It's coming to nothing. Who say, have we not taken Karnaim, which means horns, Horns in prophetic scripture referring to strength. By our own strength. But behold, I'll raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath, that's at the northern part of the kingdom, to the valley of the Arabah. That's more toward the south. So here comes the invasion. They're going to come down. And they're going to invade you and you're not going to stop it. You're not going to stand against this. So whatever little victories you think you've had, you don't have the power to do it. And it is a great lesson in life to learn, even in our day, isn't it? That we can't do it. That we need a savior. Now I'm often asked because I have this amazingly athletic body that calls to mind, you know, some of the great athletes of the past and the present. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm obviously physically disabled. I have cerebral palsy. So that's brain damage of the cerebellum, the part of your brain that controls motor function. And I've had people ask me about what that's like. How do I feel about that? And one thing that I tell people by way of testimony is, I'm so thankful that the Lord had me this way, that I am handicapped because I said I know my struggles with my own pride, with my own ego. And if I were able-bodied, so to speak, I might never have realized that I needed somebody else, that I needed help, or to put a biblical term to it, that I needed a savior. And there are a lot of people that are able-bodied, and this is what the Lord Jesus talked about. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your right eye offends thee, pluck it out. Because it's better for you to enter into life maimed than to be cast into hellfire, full and able-bodied. And that's the thing, isn't there? There's all kinds of people out there that we'd say they're the paragons of health. They're running marathons. They're running half marathons. I know because I see their bumper stickers on the highway, you know, 26.2 and uh, 13.1. I like the guy who had one on his bumper sticker. It was 0.0. I said, that's me. That's me right there. But all these people walking around and they're thinking, I've got life under control. I can handle it. I can do it. I don't need the Lord. I don't need a savior. I don't need anybody. Till God brings cancer into their life. Till they have a heart attack. Till their son or daughter dies of drugs. Till whatever happens, they lose their job or they're in a car accident or any number of tragedies that happen in a fallen world where sin is endemic. And in all these things, God is trying to bring home to us, seek me and live. Because you need a savior. Life wasn't meant to be lived independently of God. And eternal life certainly can't be had apart from knowing him. This is life eternal, said the Lord Jesus, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, John 17, 3. So know the Lord. 
whatever circumstances have to humble you and bring you to your knees or make you humble yourself and say, my Lord and my God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like the tax collector who wouldn't even look up to heaven. He'd just smite his breast in an expression of mourning. My Lord and my God, if you're not propitious to me, is his language. If you don't offer the sacrifice to pay my sins and remove my sins from me, I cannot be saved. I need your mercy, Lord. Save me a sinner. And that's what the Lord does to everyone who asks him. And as believers, we never outgrow that truth, do we? We never get to the point in our Christian life where we say, okay, I got this one, God. I'll take it from here. We're all disabled. We're all broken. We're all works in progress. And thankfully, Philippians 1 tells us, he who hath begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. He won't finish in a believer until the work is done. Until he presents us as his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which which he hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So may God help us to look to him. Father, we're thankful again for thy word. We pray it would sink deep into our hearts. And we would live in the light of it. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.